0: Before we enter into the time of worship, the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we do come um, this morning to confess For you teach it is good for our souls to uh, lay ourselves bare before you. you. You know us through and through. Uh, you know the desires of our heart, and we pray that you would quicken them more fully, that... Um, We might know you more and our desires would be enriched and enlightened and empowered uh, for your glory and for our good. We come this morning to um, confess uh, that we are weak and we are frail. We're prone to wandering and our uh, capacity to sin is um, fully known to you and sometimes um, justified in us. But always present this side of glory. So we long to know you more fully. We long to know and exercise your power that rests on us uh, this side of glory that we might walk in righteousness. So we long to see that intimacy restored, that sin um, contaminates. So we come to confess, hear our hearts, hear our corporately to walk in fuller righteousness, to to know our sin and to um, fight hard against it, to strive together in the power of Christ, uh, to hate our sin more fully and to walk in a way that reflects your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we return again to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23, really the second part of uh, verse 18, and we'll work our way through 23. The title of this morning's sermon is Our Position in Christ, part 2, so we're still looking at that reality of who we are in Christ and Paul's prayer for us, that all the praise that we've seen Paul's. Uh, elaborate on there in verses 3 through 14 will now come uh, in a a solidified manner to reality in our hearts as we walk out our Christian life together. And that culminates in a prayer. So it's praise followed by prayer is the pattern here. And again, Paul is praying in response to the significance of our position as Christ described in these verses. And then in verse 16, he gives thanks there. That's the language of verse 16. We'll read that through the end just to get a good feel for the language. Well, let's back up to 15. I'm sorry. 15, and he says, um, for this reason, I too having heard of the faith and the Lord Jesus Christ which exist among you and your uh, love for all the saints. Now, how did he hear this? He's in prison now while he's writing this. So how did he hear this? Well, uh, the church was able to visit him frequently. That was one uh, good, beautiful thing as he's writing. He's writing in that context that he had that opportunity. So he gets uh, a a lot of good report. So folks have come from the church, different churches, many churches, Asia Minor. He's not just talking about Ephesus. He's writing the Ephesus, but he's talking about the faith of all the churches that have now uh, uh, been birthed there in Asia Minor. And so he's heard these things and they've been reported to him and he's giving thanks there for what God has done in Ephesus specifically, but also in that region. Now, as we work our way through Ephesians, we'll see that he does have some rebuke for them. But up front, he is uh, exceedingly happy and full of thanks for what God has done among them. So it's for that reason, uh, this reality of, of genuine love within the church and the, and the saving work of Christ that he does not cease to give thanks there in verse 16 for them Ephesians all believers there but the others uh, churches that have been birthed in the region as well he makes mention of them in his prayers and then in verse 17 says that God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there's the prayerful language after the praise that uh, um, he is outlined there in verses uh, 3 through 14. And so he's given thanks with gratitude in his heart for the blessings that have been described in those prior verses, for all that is true for those who are in Christ. And then he goes on and he says this faith, this is a real genuine faith there in 15 that exists among them. He's heard about it. He's seen it. They've reported to him. And it's love for the saints. It's real. It's a real faith. It's a real love. And they display the glory of God in salvation. And that's really it, right? We talked about that a little bit on last Lord's Day. What really displays the glory of God in salvation most poignantly? The love that saints have for one another. That's what marks the church off as extraordinarily, supernaturally different than all other clubs, groups, teams, uh, uh, aspects, every other aspect in the world. The church is different and it's the love for one another that marks the church off as uniquely different to the glory of God. So There in verse 16 continues. He says that uh, God has lavished... His grace upon the whole region there, and he's giving thanks in his prayer. And he says he does that regularly. You see that I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That's pretty important for us. You see the perseverance of Paul here. And by the way, he's not in the greatest context of life or of his life. You know, Paul's at his—he's uh, taking his lumps. Uh, Might be an understatement, but you know, writing from prison is not the easiest context, but he never ceases. It's continuing in prayer for the saints, and that is a wise exhortation for us as well. We are to continue in prayer for one another, or to pray for one another, and we're to do that continuously. Verse 17. What's he praying That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and a knowledge of Him. And that's what we worked on a little bit last Lord's day. So it's a request that election, redemption, our inheritance, believers' position in Christ would be profoundly understood and embraced. And that this would happen through the power of prayer. In other words, the spirit of God that indwells the believers would take the prayer and use that as a means through which the spirit of God would now to do that, this work of wisdom and granting a a, a revelation of knowledge of who we are in Christ. So for Christ, for our position in Christ to be profoundly understood and embraced, we're strengthening in a man, if you will, through the power of the indwelling Holy spirit. Now, the work of Christ is, is begun in our hearts, right? That's there. The Spirit of God indwells us. The work of Christ is in our hearts. But it must be empowered and if you will, advanced towards completion. So it's not that, um, that, that you know, we have a Spirit within us and now the Holy Spirit indwells us. And so it's not just a state of mind here. It's, it's the Spirit of God in energizing our spirit. The Spirit of God is already there. It's now it's just an ongoing work of the Spirit, granting us greater capacity to walk in righteousness and in obedience to Christ and to know him more fully. And this comes through prayer. And so we worked on that a little bit last week in terms of our hope. So it's wisdom and knowledge given in a deeper understanding of the gospel, clear insight of the will of God in your life. That's what Paul's after here in saying for our praying for these things to be true. It's a work of the spirit, but not again, not just kind of uh, uh, giving us a, a state of mind. It's not that it's a supernatural ongoing work of the spirit. And here's, here's, the ongoing reality of it. So I want you to hold on to this. This is being strengthened within the inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, towards completion. Where the Spirit is quickening the mind to understand and apply the truth of God so that we are vitally engaged with the gospel within the context of which he's called us. It's in the heart and it's an ongoing empowerment okay wisdom and knowledge is being deepened in our understanding of the gospel and a clearer a clearer insight of who we are why that we would engage the gospel we would lay hold of it more fully and exercise it in our lives in the context to which god has called us so it goes on there in verse 18 he says i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of your calling. We've worked on that a little bit, the hope of your calling. Now, when Paul uses this language, he prays that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened. Oftentimes we think about the heart as being, in our culture, it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, fully attached to emotion. Everything about our culture Uh, from from the Cupid's that we got way back from the Roman world and uh, all the things that we do at Valentine's Day, the heart, everything's about the heart. We think of emotion in our culture. All of our culture is very very emotionally driven. And so you always hear heart language and you're thinking in terms of emotion. So we have to kind of back out of our culture and understand what's being said in scripture when we hear this language of the eyes of your heart. In Paul's culture, in, in the biblical uh, working out of how we hear heart, in this kind of uh, uh, context here, um, the hermeneutic of this reality, is the heart is the seat of knowledge, of understanding. It's the mind. It's the mind's eye that Paul's talking about here. It's understanding. It's an it's a layer of the intellect. It's not an emotional driven thing at all. What's anybody know right off the top of your head uh, where, where the scripture goes when it's talking about our emotions in terms of heart, in terms of body parts? What's, what's always uh, used in scripture? Right? Yeah, our bowels, right? And we can see that, right? When, when we're nervous, or if you're uh, before you, like if it's a, a big event or you have to speak in front of a large crowd or your wedding day, you remember your wedding day where you're a little nervous, it kind of like knots in your stomach. Or some people, when they're they're playing a big game or a sporting event, uh, they get very nervous, and, and so it's like it's their stomach, it's their bowels. So that's where your your nerves are. So it's a very vivid uh, uh, illustration in, in, in scripture. I always thinks so. the bowels is our emotions, right? Some people get so uh, uh, wound up over certain events that they'll even get nauseous. That's your nerves. That's your emotions. So our heart. When we think about heart in scripture, you've got to kind of flip that. Uh, in terms of the way our culture uses that term, we need to understand Paul is talking here about the mind's eye, your mind, your thinking, your understanding that brings uh, that, that brings the will of your being uh, into focus and into line and into action. It's, it's your understanding that Paul's after here, okay? So he's praying that first year we would understand, it's the seed of our thinking, that's the heart. The emotions are found in our vows, scripturally speaking. So the seat of our understanding, the core, the center of our innermost being, our innermost self, that's where Paul's going. What makes you tick in terms of how you think and then how you act based on how you think. That's what he's going after here. And he's saying that that would be enlightened, a supernatural work of the spirit. And what will happen here when we're enlightened? Well, A number of things, but let me just throw this out for you, uh, just as kind of a a foundation here: sorrow for sin. When we're right thinking, when the eyes of our hearts enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, there is sorrow for sin. Now, there's much more, but I'm giving you baselines here so we can think right now on this text. What is that? Where is our hope of who we are in Christ? We know that more fully. There is sorrow for sin and faith. Our faith is displayed in love. As we, we, use, we throw the word faith around a lot. Now, this is action. We're right thinking, and it's followed by a spiritual working out of action based on right thinking. What you're going to see is love. So we can attach real faith. That Where there's real faith in a body of Christ, there is love. Right thinking, empowered by the Spirit in the inner man, produces love. Now already, a lot of you are right there is thinking, man, woo, there's barriers for me. Well, you're not alone. There's barriers for me too. It's true for all of us. This is why the text is so good for us. We're a work in progress. And the Spirit of God is pleased to take our mind's eye, our heart, and enlighten us. And when it works when that is a working process in the church, we see real tangible examples of it being lived out. Two foundational realities are sorrow of sin and faith displayed through love. So we can hang our hats on that. It's a purified heart. Now that's not emotions. Emotions might be attached to that somewhere down the line, yes. But a purified heart, scripturally speaking, is a right-thinking mind. Empowered by the Spirit. Instructed through the Word. So, again, not to run off on tangents, but the words of our singing are very important. They're instructive. More so than, than emotional jibbing aspects of how we sing. Now, again, I, I, won't, I won't go there. I'll try to stay on, on course. But it's... Stay with me. That's where the Word of God takes us. It's how we think, empowered by the Spirit, instructed by the Word. So the emotions are not in the in, in driver's seat of our Christian walk, although emotions are not bad or wrong innately and can be a powerful aspect of who we are. And it's not something that we want to try to section off or, or, or repressed to some degree, but they want the, we want to have a driving force that is biblically sound. It's the mind, right thinking is what brings us along in the faith. And then if we're, when good emotions are attached, there's nothing wrong with that. But that does not lead. Our emotions are not leading the way in our Christian walk. The mind that's instructed and empowered, instructed through the Word and empowered by the Spirit is leading the way. Matthew five eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Remember that on the mount, Blessed are the pure in heart. What? For they shall see God. That's a right seeing of who we are in Christ. And so, hope there, we talked about hope. That's hope is really that assurance. Assurance of what? Assurance of God's effectual call in our life. A faithful waiting for the completed fulfillment of God's promise, right? So, we're experiencing the effectual calling of God in our lives, but it's not fully experienced. We're awaiting that combination. That's the assurance the guarantee that we will experience it in a fullest sense in glory while we're experiencing it in part here. Colossians 1.27. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his uh, uh, mystery among the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the assurance of glory. There it is. So that brings us this morning. Next, I want you to see the inheritance there in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open, uh, excuse me. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. Again, we looked at that last Lord's day. And then next, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So let's look next at the inheritance here. So this inheritance, first and foremost, I want you to understand is given. It's given to us just like our calling was given to us. This is a gift from God. Our effectual calling is a gift from God. And our inheritance in the saints is a gift from God. Both are given and both are made effectual by God. So this is God's sovereign work. In our lives for his glory, our inheritance and our calling both belong to God. Both are effectual uh, uh, because of God, by God, for his glory. So the immeasurable splendor of the blessing of salvation, that's your inheritance. Now, some of you may have uh, an interest in, in in your inheritance from uh a genealogical perspective, and some of you may have done much work there, and there's always lots of interesting tidbits and facts in the histories of our families. Some people are very interested in that, and some people uh, have worked extensively in that. And so that there, there can be uh, much to be gained in just some of the knowledge of, uh, of the history of your families. But this is far more glorious. This is an immeasurable Blessing. It's the blessing of salvation. And most specifically here, what he's talking about in this inheritance of the saints, um, the blessings that we have, most specifically he's talking about in this context, those who will be granted at the culmination of all things. So those that are still yet to come, the guarantee of our glorification. That's where he's working. That's where Paul is going. So we have an inheritance, and here he's speaking about it's going to be fulfilled. The promise of God that belongs to you and his effectual calling, your inheritance in the saints, will assuredly come to fulfillment. You will reign with him in glory forever. You're experiencing that in some degree now, not to full extent, but you will. And so the blessings of our salvation that he's talking about in the inheritance here is really Paul's emphasis is really on those that are still yet to come. When he's speaking in terms of our inheritance, the richness and the fullness and the splendor of the blessings of salvation will really culminate in glory. Although you experience them in wonderful, marvelous ways here. Colossians 1.12, give thanks to the, to the uh, Father who has qualified us to share an inheritance of the saints in light. And there again, pointing forward to our hope of glory. Our inheritance is a gift of God's grace. And know this, here's, what, here's where we're, we're enlightened. It's never, ever going to be taken away. No one can take away your inheritance. Now, people uh, can do many things to try to disgrace your name or disgrace the name of your family or disgrace the name of your relatives or disgrace the name of your your heritage. And and sometimes um, our descendants uh, uh, may disgrace our, our name in some of their own ways and actions. That could be the case. You could end up somewhere while you're still here on earth. And to some degree... There are authorities that would be happy to erase your name. That's the first thing some authorities in parts of the world would want to go after because it takes away your notion of having anything to connect yourself with an identity. Your name needs to go away. You're just a number. Right? Oftentimes, when people will be imprisoned in certain parts of the world and in uh, various Parts of history, the names are immediately taken away. And what do they get? what are they called? What are they called by? Number. Number. So that's, that's kind of psychologically damaging. It's purposeful. It's intentional. To erase your notion of who you are and who you're connected to. In a far greater sense you have an inheritance that connects you in full assurance to your maker. Through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The incarnate God man who has descended from his throne, united himself in mankind, lived a perfect life under the law of God, and died an atoning death on the cross for his people. They're justifying sinners before a holy God in him. That's your inheritance, that's your identity. And nothing. No one can ever take that away from you. It's an inheritance that is assured and full through the atoning blood of Christ. And it will come to full fruition and glory. No one can take it away. Isn't that glorious? I don't know much of anything at some point. I know we've lived and grown up in a culture that's been um, as flourished to a lot of degree and has a firm foundation a wonderful start, and God has been gracious. And most of us know little about things being taken away from us in this life, but they could be. There's really really no full guarantee here that somebody, my goodness, somebody can just get on the computer and at least do a little damage to your identity. But no one can take this identity. Away isn't that glorious forever and ever you are an inherited son or daughter of christ no one can do no one can take that away that's your inheritance if you are here as a genuine follower of christ that's your inheritance listen to malachi in the old testament speak to this reality and verse three excuse me chapter three and verses 16 and 18 Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepared my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What a glorious inheritance. And you see the language there? Our inheritance is in the saints. The saints, is that singular or plural? Plural. The greatest demonstration of God's work in our life is our love for ourselves, for Come on, help me. One another. Our love for the saints. That's a plural. Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's your inheritance. You have an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, those who are marked off in Christ. See, our inheritance is not a solitary project, and that sometimes is difficult for very self-centered, self-styled, self-enabled, good old Americans. It's hard for us at times. We're some of the most individualized uh, uh, people in the world. We're very individualistic in our thinking. And nothing about our inheritance, nothing about the reality of the body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, nothing about that. It, although very much personal, nothing about that is individual. Our inheritance is one that belongs with one another. And that's an undergirding pillar or one undergirding pillar. that's so beautiful about it. So it's not a solitary project. The beautiful aspect of the glory of our inheritance is that we will enjoy it with one another. When it comes to fruition in glory, you're not gonna be isolated with a, in a small little solitary place with just you in the presence of, the, of Christ. You're going to be enjoying it With all the body of Christ, all the brothers and sisters that you've lived this out with, that you've labored with, that you've toiled with, that you've struggled with. All our weaknesses, all our frailties that are on display to one another, all lived out. All the praying, all the longing for the power to be exercised in this life, all the relationships, the good, the bad, the ugly, the difficult, all our failures, all our weaknesses, all our sins has been on display for one another. All the love for one another comes to its fullest sense and all of glory, and you will share it with the saints, you will enjoy it with one another, and all is perfection. Second Timothy 4:8. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, see, now that sounds pretty personal. Yes, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. American Christian might like that. Hold on. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Everything about who we are in Christ must be understood in the context of our sharing. Here with one another in labor and toil and battle and sometimes deep struggle, but joy and love and there in the fullness of the consummating joy of our love for one another. That's our inheritance. It's not a singular thing. It's a corporate reality. And that brings us to the power. That's our inheritance. And I want you to look at the power. You see that there in verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are according, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So. Here's the power, and we've looked at our inheritance, and, and it's kind of centered heavy on the future, glory. So we've had a, we've had a call that was, uh, that, that, that was placed on us when? Before the foundation of the world. And we're still pondering that one, right? And, as, and, and you know, let me just, let me just help you. You're, you're going to continue to always ponder that one. We'll ponder that one until we get in the way. We'll have all of the glory to ponder that one before the Lord. But that's the spiritual reality to it. That's the truth. Before the foundation of the world, God had called us that he had set his sovereign grace on you. His saving favor on you. For his own good pleasure. And then there's, there's, there's our inheritance. It's a guarantee. But it's, it's, it's going to be fulfilled in glory. And now in the middle here, we have this interesting uh, uh, a prayer that our, our mind's eye, the Spirit of God, would take our mind, our thinking, and rightly place it uh, or, or rightly build it up and, and enable us to understand who we are in Christ. Called for the foundation of the world, full assurance of glory. And now in this life we're living together, there's this uh, a reality of power. So here the Spirit of God in the present is dealing with power. For us to understand who we are in Christ, we must understand the power that resides in that reality. That we would have the wisdom and the knowledge of the understanding of who we are in Christ as it relates to his power. The surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So, wow, what do we do with that? Well, it's exceedingly great power, and it's towards us. By God's power, our hope is fulfilled. That assurance is fulfilled. That happens by God's power. Our inheritance that is being fulfilled, but we're waiting for the fullness of it. That happens by God's power. And by the way, it's a power that, again, is towards those who believe. It's for the saints. It's not a power that resides anywhere else in any other context with any other people in the world, on the planet. Whatever their, their uh, social status or whatever their position or wherever they're born or wherever they live or whatever their context of life is, if they're outside of Christ, this power does not belong to them. It only belongs to those who are in Christ. It's power that belongs to the saints exclusively. In verse 19, he goes on to describe it there. describes it in three ways. So he speaks of uh, um, surpassing greatness of his power towards believers. And uh, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He has brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the rulers and authorities and powers and dominion over His uh, and and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. So that's a, a lot of strong language there. You see that his power, his strength, his might. Well, these are all three different terms in the Greek, and they're really they're they're really interchangeable to some degree. It would kind of lay out for us like this if we think of of his power there in verse nineteen. That's that's really. The best, best way I can define it is manifest energy, that, that term. That's, that's the term deutemons there, by the way. It be dynamite in our culture um, where we get the word dynamite from. And strength is really an exercise strength, and might is a great inherent strength. So an inherent strength and an exercise strength and, and, a, and a manifest energy. And all these overlap quite a bit. But they're stacked synonyms and they're stacked to emphasize something. It's to emphasize the vastness of the assurance of this power. Um, William Henderson, that uh, writer of the New Testament commentaries, a great old theologian, he just kind of summed it up this way infinite mind. When you try to take all those terms and all those synonyms and they're kind of stacked up in this text and really pauses just after the infinite mind. That's exercised among us. God's infinite might that flows within the saints. Nowhere else. It's a power that belongs to the saints. Now, when we're trying to think through all that, let, let's, let's, uh, let's go to the bowels a little bit and just get to the, the seat of the emotions as we're trying to wrap our minds around such glorious theology, such glorious truth. We don't always feel so powerful, do we? Do we? I don't. Sometimes we feel weak, tired, frightened. Amen, somebody? Frightened. Uncertain. Tempted. Overwhelmed. We have regrets. You have regrets? You have regrets? I have regrets. Think about David. We learned about David this morning. We went through David. Think he has some regrets? They don't always go away, do they? You can't just black them out. Isn't that, isn't that funny? You think, man, shouldn't God just work this way? All the regrets, all the crud, all the stuff I've done as a believer, the sins that I've sinned that's just, just burned my heart, I can't just forget about them. Sometimes they pop back in there. You think, God, why don't you work that way? Why don't you just erase it? He works that way, and I don't know in full. But part of it is this. And In spite of that, the Spirit of God is enlightening our mind's eye through the word of God, to understand who we are in Christ. And there is power, power, infinite might that works in our lives for our spiritual good and God's glory. And so, yes, we have regrets. Yes, we worry. But what is our assurance? Here's an application for you. What is our assurance? That's what you have to ask yourself. That's why this text is here. What is your assurance? the assurance of this kind of infinite might that resounds in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. What is your assurance? Well, here's the application. We are to savor and to rest upon God's immeasurable power towards believers. You settle your soul right there. Why? Because it belongs to us. According to his great mind, the God of the universe, who sent his son to die in your place, that you may be justified before him. Where there is mercy and grace exercised by God in your life. Grace giving you what you do not deserve and mercy giving, not giving you what you do deserve. It's exercising your life the atoning work of Christ. And he has assured you infinite power to live that out for his glory. And our emotions, okay, stay with me here. Our emotions, weakness, tiredness, fearfulness, uncertainty, temptation, overwhelm, regret, worry, on and on and on. Our emotions don't always line up with this. So the Spirit of God, we must pray that the Spirit of God will take the truth of God and enlighten our minds, I, had to understand who we are in Christ according to his power that's working in our lives to live this thing out in obedience to his glory. It belongs to us because of his great might. Look there in verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay. You wonder about the power that's working in your life? Here, the Spirit of God gives you an example of that power. What's being said here, he he tells us this power belongs to us. And then he says, I'll give you an example of this power. It's the same power that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son himself used as a triune God to resurrect the incarnate Christ. It's that kind of power. It's that same power. Now, let your mind I ponder that a little bit. Somebody say, "Amen." what about that? That power is working in your life. That's what scripture tells us. Now, you have, to, you have to back up and savor and rest upon that because that's hard to emotionally connect to. That's the gospel truth in your life. That's who you are in Christ. So God has, if you will, a storehouse of this infinite power, same power that he exercised when he used it to raise his son from the dead and seat him at his right hand. By way of application, just ponder that, ponder that reality and do not be discouraged when when the emotions come, when the struggles of life come, when the fear comes, when the anxiety comes. Do not be discouraged. Ponder that God placed in here a reminder that tells every saint in every corner of the world, in every context, that that, let's say, more poignant, He tells you right where you need it worst, every right where you need the worst, every day, any day, all the time. The resurrection power—that kind of power is the power that resounds with you enlightened by the spirit of god equipping you to walk in righteousness to the glory of god ponder that that's what you do ponder and pray that god will solidify that in you in your in your context in those circumstances in the moment if you will ponder that Do not be discouraged. Look, do not look to yourself. That's the killer. That's what, That's where we fail. Don't look to yourself. Oh, my goodness, we're so self-styled. We're so self-assured. We're so self-dependent. Don't look to yourself. My goodness, we're frail. We're weak. We're powerless in and of our own strength. Why? Why are we so stubborn? Why are you so stubborn? Why? Dear saints, stop looking to yourself. You know why you don't love one another like you should? You always look to yourself. You know when you look to yourself and you start looking yourself and that's not too funny. You just start looking at somebody else. Well, they should have done this, this, and that. What's wrong with them? Well, it's their fault. I'm not going to make it up. What about them? They should have done this. They should have that. Why don't they understand me? Why don't they care about me? Why, why, why? Stop. That's you looking at yourself, by the way. Stop looking at yourself. Ah. Lord, help us. We are powerless in our own strength. Look to the promises of God for the saints, secured in Christ, accomplished by the power of God, vividly on display through the resurrection. You look there. You look there and do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. You have power to serve. Don't mope. You have power to serve. Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power with might which works within me. You have power to obey Don't feel sorry for yourself. You have power to obey. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You have power to obey. You have power to evangelize. Don't don't, don't say that's not your gift. Don't say, well, you know, I'm just a little, I'm kind of quiet, I'm not really. Stop blaming yourself. You're called to evangelize. Stop. You have power to evangelize. Romans 1:16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. By the way, the Jew first and also to the Greek, that covers everybody. So you have power to evangelize to everybody. You have power to persevere. Don't be disheartened. Don't be troubled. You have power to persevere. Second Corinthians 4:7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Oh, how frail we are in and of ourselves. But we have this treasure in our earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Amen. Somebody, you have power to persevere. Now, we have our share of fears and doubts, but the resurrection is that great historical, objective, verifiable reminder that drives away the doubt. That's why it's here. It's here for you forevermore and the word of God for you. When the doubt comes, you think about the reality of that resurrection power that belongs to you and it will drive away the doubts and the fears. That's the great demonstration of God's power right there. And it reminds us it belongs to us. Same power belongs to us now in the present, in our ministry for the glory of God and how we go out and all the frailty of our, of our, of our uh, uh, frail vessels. We go out with the power of Almighty God before us. How, don't fear. Don't doubt. You go out in the power of God and you let the chips fall where they may. You tell the truth. You live it out. Live it out in God's strength and tell the truth. We have a short whisper of a time here. We don't just need to come and go here. We have a whole life to live this out. We have a context God's given us. See and savor this power that belongs to you in Christ. It's the same power. We minister to the glory of God. When we think about this ascension, this ascension of Christ there, not only was he resurrected, but he also ascended, right? And where did he go there? What does it say? To the right hand of the Father. No, and that's, that's a place of power. That's the point. Uh, back to, He goes back to where he came from, his position of power and full authority as, as a second person of the triune God. But it's, it's the assurance. The ascension is the assurance that God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice, his one-time sacrifice for sin. is accepted. That's what, that, that's, that's, a, that's what it's telling us all throughout history. Look, he ascended back to the Father. Why? Because the Father accepted his finished work on the cross. It's a done deal. And I want you to understand this. His ascension to the Father prepared the way for your ascension to the Father. You have an inheritance. It's a guarantee. The incarnate God has prepared a place For us in glory. Right back to where he came from. Because his work here is finished. Our sin debt is paid in full. And he's preparing a place for us. That is assured for us. Now I say to this to you. There is no other region on this planet that has that promise. None. Will you do your best? Hope for the best. And maybe it'll work out in the end. This is a promise from the eternal God that your Savior has prepared a place for you in glory. This ascension is a glorious, glorious comforter and builder of our courage, a reminder of our strength, a reminder of who we are in Christ. Our perspective on who we are in Christ changes our perspective on the world. Only you understand that. Our right thinking is based on our understanding of who we are in Christ, and then it affects how we see the world around us. We're in the middle of a heartbreaking political climate, are we not? I pray you're not depending on a particular politician for anything. God help you if you are. It's a devastating political climate. It's heartbreaking. It'll wear your emotions out. But we should see it rightly. The reality is that Christ is king. He reigns. Verse 21. He ascended far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, Christ is at the right hand governing the universe. Do you see that? So that means you don't have to worry about the sickening political climate of our time. Now, I'm not saying don't be engaged and aware. You don't understand what I'm saying. But you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be afraid. Christ is reigning over the sickening political climate of our time. He's reigning over it with all power. He's governing the universe, and he's governing for what? For one purpose. Do you see that? Why is he governing Why is he governing the universe? Why is he bringing it to his consummate in the way that he is? For his church. Do you see that? He is head over all things to the church. Everything that's working out in our current climate, everything that's working out in the context of this world, is working out for God to glorify himself to the utmost uh, 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 reality of who he is in his church. To bring his church through and out of this reality with great power to his glory for all time throughout eternity. That's what he's doing. That's what Christ is doing actively at the right hand of the Father now. And exercising and gifting you with great power to be his vessels to bring it through To the end. He's, let me put it as clear as I can. He's helping you. Can I put it that way? Your Christ is helping you every step of the way, every day. He's helping you obey Him and trust Him and walk in power to His glory. He's helping you. So how do we apply this? Well, approach the throne of grace based on his finished work. He has ascended. He's reigning over the universe in full power for the purpose of glorifying his church to the, exactly, to the exact degree and way and manner that he chooses for your spiritual good and his glory. He's helping you. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. And these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That God, your Savior, the second person of triune God, has gone back to where he came from and is exercising full power over every aspect of our reality to his glory and for your good. He's much higher than all angels. He alone has authority. No other authority or dominion can come close to him. There is no challenger. He fully reigns. And he has, and he has granted you exercise or access to his power as his vessels, as his people, as his children, to live out uh, our lives for his glory and obedience and faithfulness. Angels have no power apart from Christ. None. It's the loftiness of Christ that creates a deep, abiding assurance in you. The Spirit of God is taking the truth of God's word and exercising it in your mind's eye, in your heart, so that you understand the loftiness of His power. That's what gives you courage. That's what gives you assurance. That's what gives you the enabling grace to walk in righteousness. That's what gives you uh, uh, your your, uh, boldness. That's what moves you. That's what encourages you. Verse 22 tells us he's the head over all things. All things are subject under him. Through the church, Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. No other leader can make that claim, can they? Can anyone make that claim? No, he has all authority over heaven and earth. And his ascension qualifies him to make that statement. His ascension fuels our ministry. That's the fuel. That's the gas. We carry the gospel. Why do we carry it? Why do we carry the gospel? We carry the gospel because, who, because of who Christ is. That's why. We have to know who he is. Otherwise, we won't carry it. It's too weighty. It's too dangerous. It's too electric. It's too costly. We'll reason it out. And it's too much. It's too, It costs too much. It's too dangerous. We begin to understand who we are in Christ by beginning to understand who He is and what He has done for us. We'll carry the gospel. We'll begin to carry it. You know why? Because we want everybody to know them. We begin to understand who we are in Christ. We begin to understand what he has done for us, then we will want everybody to know our hearts will break for sinners. He alone has the power to forgive and we need forgiveness. I want you to see something there as we close out in verse 23. So he's head over all things to the church. For this one purpose, he's head over the whole universe. He's bringing this thing together for one purpose the church. The church is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. Now, I want you to catch that. So, Christ feels all in all. And we see that. He's ascended to the right hand of God, he's ruling and reigning over the universe, bringing about his the church, his church, the bride, to present to God the Father. To glorify the grace of God. The apex all throughout eternity. Well, I want you to see that there. We are the fullness of Christ. In the world. We're his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now. Here's the walk away for us. As we close out today. We are Christ's complement. I don't know how else to put it. Now, we're his compliment that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him, but he has chosen us and made us his compliment. There's real worship here, there's real understanding in the heart that's exercised in life and obedience. And in some sense, it's not until we're in his presence. That he regards himself as complete. You see that? We're his body, the fullness of him. So we fill him out. In the mind of Christ, although his redemptive work is finished, although he's ascended in full power, there's a fullness about him that's not yet complete until consummation and glory. You see that? That has to do with you. Now, this is not his deity. Don't don't misunderstand me. This is not his deity. This is not his divine essence. What is this? What has he done? He's taken on flesh, is he not? This is the incarnate God-man. As the bridegroom, you see the picture there? As the bridegroom, he is not yet complete. Until he is fully united with his bride. That is you. That is the covenant love that reigns over us from our God. That is a theology that grants the power to walk in righteousness. You have power to obey your God because you're part of the bride that he has chosen now. To fulfill himself as bridegroom forevermore in glory. Let's pray. Precious Father, we thank you. What a text. What do we do with it? We 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 pray that you would take these truths, these glorious truths that are, are far beyond the capacity for uh man to comprehend, that you would do a work that belongs to you, a, a supernatural work, that you would take. These truths and that you would enlighten our heart, that you enlighten the eyes of our our mind, our thinking, that we would know more fully and in an ongoing sense who we are in Christ. That our lives would live that out and that there would be actual gospel action that flows out of this glorious reality. Please take these truths and and, um, seal them and burn them and sear them into our hearts, into our thinking that we might rightly think and continue to rightly think in a way that um, brings about a beautiful sanctification among us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.